Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective Podcast. Brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Costa Sunglasses, Turtle Box Audio, All Hands Vodka, and Orvis Fly Fishing. We're back with another live episode with our friends at the Tampa Bay Waterkeeper. This podcast was recorded at an all-hands happy hour we hosted at Tailwater Outfitters in Tampa, Florida. In this podcast, I'm joined by local guide Greg Peterson and Adam Fernandez, who's a board member with the Tampa Bay Waterkeeper. In this podcast, Greg shares with us how he went from chasing steelhead in his mom's minivan to being an established guide in the Tampa Bay area. We get to hear more about how he thinks it's important for us to be mobile when fishing and what he looks for when he scouts new areas. And he shares with us some tips and tricks of night fishing. Adam joins us for the second part of the podcast to dive into how we can better help connect people with the water and the wild places that we love and what it looks like to turn spectators into advocates. For those of you in the Tampa Bay area, we'd love for you to join us at the Tampa Theater for the Fly Fishing Film Tour on May 7th, 2023. You can find out more by checking out the Tampa Bay Waterkeeper website. We hope to see you there. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy. This is the Captain's Collective. I'll say it's anything you choose. I think it picks you. You know, it's genetic let everything else stop in the world and just be quiet and it's amazing where your mind goes at that point um, and where it doesn't go and sometimes just that quiet space is is what we need and especially in this day and age you have a fly rod in your hand it's this tool that takes you to beautiful places you meet hopefully wonderful people and it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure when the fish is coming that shot within a shot that timer starts no one else knew anything anyway and you just might definitely making it up if you're going along but so what grandpa and dad would tell me is like all right where's an old big trout laying out there where's his shaving cream on the water where's he been shaving this morning at? So look for his shaving cream on the water and that's where he's gonna be all right well hey greg thanks so much for hanging out on the podcast today we're here at tailwater outfitters getting ready for the tampa bay waterkeeper fly fishing tournament and we're doing a live recording and having a good time and i really appreciate you uh just for carving out a little bit of time before game day and sitting down with us no problem so just give me a little bit of background about you because i know you're a local guide here but i also did a little bit of research and kind of asked around i know that you got your start way up north in a much colder, harder place than this, chasing steelhead. What, what for you was your entry into fishing, and how did that somehow lead you to this particular fishery today? Uh, so, I mean, basically, there's not a single person in my family that could care less about fishing. I don't, I don't know where it came from, um, but my parents were missionaries for two years in the uh, South Pacific. Pontepe and I I fished every single day with a pot bottle and string <laughs> I mean I'd catch hermit crabs and catch whatever and they moved to Michigan after that and <clears throat> I found out what salmon were I snagged the shit out of salmon for 10 years <laughs> is that so and th- I your loved first it. one was snagged like how does, how does a kid get into salmon what does that look like I mean you can see them sitting there in the water they're huge <laughs> they're spawning and I, we didn't know any better. Yeah. 
but uh <laughs> i went out there and saw that and i mean that's what we did when we were kids i that's all i wanted to do and then i just progressed from there i found out how to snag them in the mouth which was actually legal and then uh <laughs> actually found out how to fish for them yeah later on and then kind of just graduated to steelhead did so your parents were missionaries and you end up in michigan for you did you you know did you have somebody who kind of came alongside you and kind of helped guide you and encourage you along the way what did the education side of that look like nobody it was my parents were always happy to take me to the river but that was i like i said i don't know where it came from <laughs> and where did the fly fishing aspect come in for you uh so i mean that was basically a one-day thing um you know i fished a spinning rod probably until i was i would say seventh eighth grade and i was having a good day on the river i caught three big steelhead and somebody stepped in the river below me hmm. and he was actually swinging a fly way back before it was even popular and he caught a big steelhead and i was like i want to do that hmm. it was one day i sold my bmx bike two days later i bought a reddington <laughs> rod and reel combo and that was that so what did that for you I think a, a lot of people, especially when they get into fishing or whether it's fly fishing or, or really honestly, any type of technical fishing, it can get really frustrating and they tend to quit and fly rods and fishing gear tend to kind of get put in the corner and gather a lot of dust. So for you, how did, how did your evolve, your evolution go as an angler being self-guided and what tips would you maybe give to people who are kind of at the beginning of something new? Uh, I mean, you have to have it somewhere in there because there's, there's plenty of tough days. I mean, I, I literally none of my friends fished, um, nobody. It was just all learning it on your own and there's just something in there and you learn it time on the water. I slept in my parents' minivan. I don't know how many hundreds of nights <laughs> I'd fish all night long, all day. Did they have in the Michigan. DVD player thing in it or? No. Oh, you were no, that's, really, that was really way above our rough in it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So how do you go from snagging salmon and steelhead to f being a fishing guy in Tampa Bay? I mean, I always love fishing and it's funny. Somebody, one of my friends sent me a picture out of our high school yearbook. You know, the senior thing where you say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I put, I put fishing guide in there. I don't even <laughs> remember doing that, but I did. And, uh, yeah, it, Florida was totally different when I got here. Mm -hmm. I didn't catch a redfish for two years. Mm -hmm. It's hard as shit to catch a redfish around here. <laughs> I've and, noticed. Uh, yeah, you got to stick with it. Mm -hmm. It's got to it's be in there somewhere. Otherwise, it's, it's very frustrating. So I know at one, one point in your life, you were teaching. Yeah, the first five years I lived here in Florida. Okay. Did you move down to Florida because you wanted to be in the fishery, or was there another? That had something that? Okay. something to do with it, but I found a job that I wanted to do. Um, I taught phys ed and biology okay. like at the middle school level, which is what I went to school for. And uh, then I got down here and saw these giant damn silver things swimming all over the place. And hmm. luck, luck has it, <laughs> I have two months off of my job every yeah. summer to go fishing for tarpon and that's that's really what started everything okay and as somebody who has a i've interviewed a couple people who have backgrounds in teaching and education how do you feel like your background of five years working with middle schoolers which god bless you for that <laughs> <laughs> but how how uh how did your time as a middle school teacher shape the way that you think about fishing and guiding 
Oh, it, it was huge. And I even say something about it in my website. Um, the kids that I worked with, you know, a lot of them didn't have a dad. Mm-hmm. They didn't have a family. Um, I, I had like a little $4,000 boat when I was a teacher. I had no money at all. But I took those kids fishing all the time. They had no clue what they were doing. Sometimes we caught fish, sometimes we didn't. Um, but as a guide now, that's that's huge. Because mm-hmm. a big part of our job, you know, we all have our tarpon clients that kind of know what they're doing. They can fish. But a big part of our job is taking people out that they have no clue what they're doing. Mm-hmm. They've trout fished their whole life, and there's a huge teaching aspect to it. Mm. You know, I had a charter this week, and I said, we're not fishing for two hours. Mm. We have to learn how to get you to cast at least 30 feet before we even go do this and that that all tied real close into to teaching yeah and I'm curious for you as you think back to your experience as a kid sleeping in the sleeping in the minivan and doing all that and not I'm guessing not spending any if hardly any time around guides how None. how does how does your kind of solo lone wolf <laughs> upbringing and fishing affect the way that when you have a kid a middle schooler or high schooler get on your boat how does that impact the way that you handle them uh, I mean that's tough to say because I never never had that um, but you just you got to take it as it is and and uh, do what you can with them mm-hmm. I mean I, I've probably hired two guides in my entire life and uh just those kids you you just go out there and you see what you can do mm. that's it and that's that's what you do a lot of times guiding too now for you here in tampa bay i know that you were saying that for you kind of the hook was tarpon and absolutely um that was what really you know you went tarpon crazy but i know that you do a wide variety of fishing throughout the year Mm-hmm. I'm curious for you, when you kind of, if, if I were to bump into you at a bar and you were trying to explain to me the types of fishing you do and what all you do, can you give me the bar pitch to, to what you're doing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, that can go either way. Um, if I told you what I actually do, you may not book a charter with me the next day. <laughs> Snagging Because it's, it's hard as shit, <laughs> what we do. Um, but uh, yeah, we do it the hard way, and we don't we don't have an easy fishery. What what does that mean for somebody who maybe they've never fished Tampa Bay and haven't been here? What's the hard way? I mean, we're fly fishing, and if you're if you're on the flats in shallow water, you pretty much have to be able to see mm-hmm. to be successful. And there's plenty of days out there where you can't do it. I mean, if you have high tide, you can bang shorelines, do all that stuff. Um, but it's it's a torture test to do what we want to do and fish the way we want to want to fish and for you outside of tarpon what do you like to target here i love the redfish way more than the snook red redfish (laughs) why is that because i i feel like so that's interesting that you say that because i feel like a lot of the people that i meet so we don't have snook where i'm at really Mm -hmm. um and when i come down here and i and people ask if i have snook i'm like no and they and they all seem like it seems like most people like snook more than redfish i could be totally wrong on that but i'm just speaking from my own experience Mm -hmm. give me the case for why redfish are better than snook (laughs) Uh, it's just it's the setting they're in you know how how shallow they are and you know like it or not our our snook are very pressured in this fishery i mean they're they're hand fed every single day and uh 
the redfish just they're in a situation that is is more fun for me and mm -hmm. gives people that are fishing a better chance of success it's it's hard to fish sight fish a big snook yeah. on a flat it's one of the hardest things to do like a 30 plus inch fish when we do it there's there's certain times a year where you can be very successful but it's it's pretty short windows okay so yeah that's it that's interesting because you know when i think about tampa bay you know of course it's like i you know there's snook here there's redfish here there's tarpon here you know you can go offshore it's a big city and um a lot of times like people especially from where the area that i'm that i currently live in they uh there's a lot of times all the people want to talk about with tampa bay is how many people live down here and how crowded it is and how pressured the fish are and all that's true i've also found that when i fished with guys who kind of cut their teeth down here that it makes them great anglers because absolutely <laughs> it's Dude, like i love know. going bone fishing it's easy <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's the people say bone fish are hard they're not, yeah. not if you come from Tampa Bay red fishing every day. So, so give me some, give me some tips on, I always like having this conversation, but give me some tips on fishing for fish that have high pressure. Uh, I mean, you gotta be mobile. Uh, any, any flat in this whole bay could have been fished 10 minutes before you got there. And if that's the case with our fish, they're, they're probably not going to be too cooperative. Mm -hmm. Um, you got to have a lot of different spots. We all have our favorite spots. We all have, you know, show me spots mm -hmm. where you're going to see the fish. You're not going to catch them. Um, you need to have a lot of options because you can tell when you roll up to a flat whether those fish are fishable. And what's that, what's that look like? Like you're, you're, let's say that you're getting on a flat and you're seeing the wrong things. What are you seeing? Uh, you're seeing the fish push away from here to the door mm -hmm. before you can even see them. Mm-hmm. And if they're doing that, it's it's pretty much yeah, time to go. Yeah, you're gone. Yep. Even though you're seeing fish, you're you're out. But you can go. You know, the fish aren't in the same mood all over the bay. Mm -hmm. You can drive a half a mile and have fish that are in a 100% different mood. Do you find yourself moving a lot? Do you, how many how many uh, on average? How many times do you think you you shift spots on a given day? I would say well over 10. Um, you know, I live on the South Shore. And I fish a lot all the way up here in, in the top of the bay. I like most of my days, I, I plan like a giant circle. So I can just work my way all the way around and just hit a bunch of different spots for, you know, 30, 40 minutes. A lot of people sit on the same flat for three, four hours, and sometimes it's worth it, but mm -hmm. you got to move. You have to. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense to, to me. And I'm, I'm always curious when I'm fishing with people and they, they go, hey, let's make a move. You know, like rather than just kind of like just sitting there and not really asking questions, sometimes I'll ask like, hey, like what's going through your head? Like what's, yeah, you know, people what, ask that all the yeah. time. They're I like, we just saw question. 200 redfish. Why are we, why are we leaving? You're not going to catch any of those 200 redfish. Yeah. <laughs> You're not happy with the behavior. And, exactly. Um, and then let's say that on, on the back end of that, obviously, if you're on a if you're on a flat and you're catching fish you're going to stay on fish but like what Absolutely. are some positive things when you get on a, a flat outside of catching fish what are some positive things that you're looking for that maybe excite you for for what's in store uh, i mean water levels everything um you know obviously you like it kind of really low or or higher that mm -hmm. that mid-level water is tough because the fish are they're kind of in no man's land yeah and if they're over grass you, you really can't see them um you just want to see life on a flat, anything moving, and that that encourages you to stay there. Mm -hmm. 
That's the same way with, with any of the flats fishing. If you see the rays, the sharks, all that stuff, it's, it's a much better sign. Yeah. There are dead flats every single day, and you, you can tell when you roll up. There's yeah. just nothing going on. Then you're just, you're out quick. Yep, out quick. Ten minutes, five minutes sometimes, okay. you're gone. So one of the things that's interesting here, too, in Tampa Bay is, you know, you have a lot of water, you have a lot of shoreline, but you also, and I think this contributes to the, the pressure, too, but you guys have an entire world of night fishing, which I'm really interested by. And me and you talked earlier, um, we talked yesterday just about how that's not really something that you do much anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm curious, you know, what could you kind of give for maybe people who don't have access to a lot of night fishing, just a little bit of an overview about what that looks like here in the Bay and what it takes to have some success there? Yeah. I mean, if you want to catch fish, especially snook, you go nighttime's the right time. I mean, we all know it. A lot of people, a lot of people, you know, just focus on that solely Mm -hmm. because you can catch fish pretty much any night that you go out and have decent weather. And I, I don't, I did it a ton when I started. I mean, it was probably half of half mm-hmm. of my guiding, um, but nobody else is out there. You have all these million-dollar homes with all these lights in front of them, and the fish are literally sitting on top of the lights. And then you have the you know the bridge tarpon fishery too, mm-hmm. which that that can get that can get hairy real quick, but it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> what for you? I know that you don't do it as much anymore. What led to that decision for you? Uh, I, you know, I just got busier with yeah. the daytime stuff. And there's a lot of shit that can go wrong at night. And <laughs> the, the older you get, the more you don't want to stay up till 4 in the morning. Um, but it's a it's a great thing. Like when I cancel charters because of weather during the day and people are disappointed, they only had one day to fish, then you take them out at night yeah. and catch a bunch of fish. I prefer to fish during the day, mm-hmm. but it is it is a badass fishery. Yeah. It's, it's really cool. Yeah, it's 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 cool to think that there's access for people who are working till six yeah. or seven p.m. You know, and I mean, of course, nobody wants more pressure in their fishery. Nobody wants necessarily more boats on the water. You know, but at the end of the day, too, we all want to see the tradition that we love of fishing and caring for the water. And we'll talk more about that in a bit here. But we all want to see that passed on. And so, for people, for a kid to be able to finish up a high school football game and just go mm-hmm. get on the water and just to know that that's the next generation of anglers. I mean, that's Absolutely. exciting. You that's know? what I did. I, I night fished three nights a week when I was a school teacher. Yeah. I get done with work. I'd, I'd go fish till one in the morning, hook a few tarpon, and then you're back teaching at seven thirty in the morning. So for you, don't, don't give any names here, but as a guide, I'm curious, what type of client are you most excited to fish with outside of, let me remove good caster. Like what, what type of, you can't remove that. You got to remove good casters. I'm just saying, (laughs) let's just assume that everybody's Mm -hmm. a good caster, but let's be honest. Let's just assume most people are bad casters. Okay. What type of, you know, how do they, what type of, what are you looking for in a good client outside of class casting? Somebody that gets it. They understand what they're doing. Um, I, even my tarpon anglers, I have a lot of anglers that cannot cast, but they are super fun people to be on the boat with you can have meaningful conversation mm-hmm. all day long um you know they're not just multi-millionaires that can do nothing wrong mm-hmm. we have plenty of those too um you just you want somebody to talk to there's so much downtime on the water when you're not actually throwing at fish um you just need people that get it and you can talk to it's mm-hmm. probably the biggest thing 
in a similar vein to that, I like interviewing guides at different points in their career. Like I've been able to sit down with some guys who are really, you know, in their eighties and looking back mm -hmm. and I've been able to sit down with some guys who are younger and really towards the start. And I enjoy sitting down with what I call like a middle brother. That's kind of, you know, yeah. not, not a spring Turkey, but no spring chicken, spring Turkey. I got Turkey in the either brain. one. Yeah, Either it one. works. Uh, not a spring chicken, not, you know, not completely green, but also not 80 years old and looking back. Right. Um, for you, as you think about the next generation of guides here in the Tampa Bay area, and what are you hoping to see from them? And what are you hoping will uh, continue to grow or improve here in the area? I mean, that's a tough one, um, especially with the pressured fishery. Um, you know the whole social media thing is it's it, it can do so much good and mm -hmm. it can do so much bad for a fishery mm -hmm. i just i think that the new newer guides need to be very careful with mm -hmm. how they use it and use it for the right reasons i'm not very active at all mm -hmm. on social media um, but we live in a city I, I think there's five million people right around here and with that amount of people you can do a lot of damage with with what you say and what you don't say mm -hmm. um but just be in it for the right reasons not not just to uh yeah show everything that you're doing and, and what would you say for anybody that wants to get into fishing not just guiding what do you feel like are the right reasons because you want to be there not not for the money it's obviously not the money mm -hmm. people say all the time man you must make a, a really good really good living charging me this much for a day of fishing yeah we don't <laughs> we don't i just had to repower my boat yeah. nine thousand dollars gone at the start of the year um but you got to have it somewhere in here you know not just be in it um for the wrong reasons well i appreciate just getting a chance before we dive into this next little panel just to learn a little bit about you know kind of your background and your history so we're going to invite Adam on to a little discussion here about what it looks like for us to help people uh, not just get on the water, but get the big picture of what it looks like to be connected to a place and care about the water. So thanks Absolutely. for that. All right. Well, one of the things that we wanted to do tonight was have an opportunity to talk about how do we continue to engage the next generation and engage people who maybe aren't familiar with fishing or fly fishing in caring and stewarding the environment and the outdoors and the places that we love and, and cherish. And so uh, we're here at the Tampa Bay Waterkeeper Fly Tournament and I have Adam, who's one of the board members sitting on the panel with me. And then also Greg, who we just heard from a few moments ago. And before we dive into the conversation tonight, I'd love to hear about how you two first met because I hear that there's a pretty funny story. Well, I think we met well over a decade ago uh, out on the uh, the tarpon lanes out there off of uh, Anna Maria through our mutual friend, Colby Cletus Hain, a <laughs> uh, good buddy of both of ours uh, and fantastic guide here on the west coast of Florida. And uh, Greg, I think, had just moved to town and was running a Sabalo 16 at that point, I think. Right? Yeah, yeah, I bought that skiff for – I went tarpon fishing with Brian, and I bought that skiff for – $3,800 two days later, unfinished. Yeah. How'd you meet Brian, Brian Chamberlain? Oh, uh, the fly club. Yeah. Tampa yeah. Bay fly club. He said, Hey man, I'll take you fishing. I said, I can't afford that. He had just started guiding, but we sat out there all day, saw seven fish and I bought a, 
boat two days later and go. i got super lucky that it actually worked yeah cut yeah. the transom down put an 800 dollar motor that i bought from pirate marine on it lit it on fire the first day i had it blew both my tires on the trailer but uh after that it was pretty much trouble free yeah i think at that point i uh was still cutting my teeth too to a certain extent i don't think i had a skiff at that point i was fishing with frank lanzas era who was my mentor you know and fly fishing saltwater so important to have a mentor like you're just talking about having brian so to speak and frank lanzas era was mine and uh showed me the way of the tarpon fly fishing uh, quite some time ago, about 20 years ago now. But I think that's how I met Greg, who was out there on uh, the tarpon waters off of Anna Maria, and uh, got to talking. Saw each other on the water and got to talking and started fishing together shortly thereafter. Now, what's the Easter Bunny story? <laughs> so, oh, goodness. Um, after Greg and I had been fishing for a while, um, I really wanted to get down to the Keys. I hadn't been down to the Keys too much. He had been a couple times. Yeah, maybe like twice. Yeah, and um, I, no had bought, I had bought um, – He was an expert. Yeah, <laughs> I had bought uh, Frank, who I was just talking about, his Dolphin Super Skiff, and never run a boat down there before and got to talking to uh, Colby, our mutual friend. He's like, hey, why don't you go down there with Greg? And we had plans to go down there Easter weekend, and this was, man, 12 years ago, 11, 12 years ago. might have been more. I remember at that time, um, I'm an attorney in Tampa in private practice and I do civil trial law but at the time I was a criminal prosecutor with the Hillsborough County State Attorney's Office making no money and at that time Greg you know didn't really have much money either and we got to talking and we're like we can't afford any of these places to stay down there <laughs> and the plan was to tow my skiff down and stay and um, do some permit fishing maybe some some tarpon so uh, the only thing we could afford which is still expensive for us at the time was to stay at the Big Pine Key campground and uh, so we had a tent, we had my electric griddle, all this stuff and grand plans. And I remember I had a long day in court that day and um, we think we left around four or five o'clock. Yeah. I left my Honda Element at Walmart for four days. Yeah. <laughs> hey, my wife had a Honda Element yeah. and that's I love a that fishing thing. machine, man. I towed yeah. my yeah. Maverick with that for my first year and a half guy. Yeah, we no towed, carpet, yeah. the little seeds yeah. would spray it out. Pop, I mean, yeah. yeah. And we towed my, my super skip down with my old Isuzu Rodeo, and, uh, which the brakes were questionable, if you might recall. <laughs> and um, on the way down, we got in at like nighttime, and Greg was like, hey, we got we to stop at this bridge. We got to stop at this bridge. And it was already late. I'm tired. It must have been 9 or 10 at night at that point. And um, can I say the bridge? Not exactly a secret, but it was. Yeah, the, it doesn't the, matter anymore. Yeah, you can't fish it. It was the Vodka Cut Bridge. <laughs> And normally, I think you said we, you'd fish it off the side, but there were people camping there. So we ended up walking up to the very peak of the bridge and staring down. And I've never seen anything like it or since, but there was a tarpon like every foot just across the entire span of the bridge. And it was just unbelievable. And he's like, watch this. He just went straight up and straight down with the fly. And it was just drifting, and it would drift for like half a second. Boom. <laughs> We it's, were called doodle, it's called doodle socking. <laughs> doodle socking? It's not really casting. <laughs> Is that a salmon term? I don't know. It might be. Anyway, so we were launching tarpon on eight and nine weights, you know, just breaking them <laughs> off immediately or throwing the hooks. And we had a fun with that for about an hour and a half, two hours. And then we made it to this campground. It's a long story. I'm sorry. But we get this campground. We set up our tent. It's pitch black. And um, what I didn't realize was the entire place is just covered with gravel. And so anytime a car would come in, we'd get their headlights into the tent, and it would just gravel sounds, everything. So I'm sleeping like shit. I'm tired. And around, um, 
I don't know, probably six in the morning. I think we set our alarms for like 6.30 or something, so I'm still trying to sleep. And we have the front of the tent open, just the mesh, the bug mesh, and I hear a crunch, 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 and it kind of wakes me up, and I'm half asleep. And I look out the front, and it's this man who's walking to the front of our tent. I'm like, that's weird. And then he reaches down to the front of our tent. I'm like, what the hell is this guy doing? And I think I mentioned I was a criminal prosecutor at the time, putting people in prison. So, you know, listen, I have my sidearm, and um, <laughs> this guy reaches down to the front of our tent. I dust off the man voice, what the hell are you doing? Get on. The guy jumps back, I'm the Easter Bunny, I'm the Easter Bunny. I work for the campground. <laughs> he was putting little eggs of candy. He was leaving an egg on our tent. Yeah. <laughs> What a weird thing to do. And I just, uh, I'm all, my <laughs> adrenaline's through the roof now. I'm wide awake. And I just hear Greg giggling next to me in his sleeping bag. And uh, and that's the Easter Bunny story. So, mm. yeah. so you know, full circle, he, here we are today. And we're, we're kind of at the eve of this tournament. And the hope is that people would not only be educated, but also be connected to the natural resource that's the water here in Tampa Bay. And you two are, are friends, you guys have a friendship and you know each other, but you also have two very different career paths. Um, you know, one in the courtroom and one on the water. And, uh, but you guys are, are united, not just by stories of Easter bunnies and, uh, you know, bridge fishing, but also united by a love for this place. And you wanna see this place enjoyed for many generations to come. And you wanna see this place be as good as it possibly can be. And so what I wanted to talk with you about during this is how do we try to help people not just come out on the water and enjoy it, which is great, but also become people who actually have a connection and care about it. And to preface that, I think one of my concerns is, you know, we live in a, in a world where so many people, and so often people talk about this being teenagers and young people, but the truth is it's adults too, where it's like, let me come, let me get my experience, let me get my photo, my two hours, and then I'm gonna leave and not really think and care and have a connection to the place. I just want the sunset photo, I want the fish grab, I want the jet ski, you know, TikTok video, and then I wanna get out of here. Out of sight, out of mind. Out of sight, out of mind, that's a perfect right. way to put it. So. How do we help, and I'm curious from your perspectives and your different angles, how do we help people have a connection with a place that ultimately eventually leads to helping preserve and protect it? I think first and foremost, I mean, you can communicate information about the problems we have in Tampa Bay till you're blue in the face and the stormwater and the wastewater issues, but when it comes to getting the support of everybody out there, that's not necessarily you know, focused on fishing or maybe they're paddleboarders or boaters or sailors, whatever the case may be, um, is getting them to be passionate about the waters of Tampa Bay. And sometimes I think we can be very complacent and take for granted what we have here. And even though we do have problems, it is an absolutely beautiful place. Every time I go over the Skyway Bridge, going to my hometown of Bradenton to go visit with family or friends, I always make sure to say to my boys who are nine and six, we are absolutely blessed to live here. And it is the water we have and the sandbars, the oyster bars, the fish. Um, it's not necessarily just the fish, you know, just to get out there, the sunsets. Um, when you have a stormy afternoon and the sun sets after and the beautiful colors you get, we're absolutely blessed to be here. So when it comes to protecting what we have, 
I think communicating to the public and getting them excited about what we have and just keep reminding me, reminding them, excuse me, about what we have here is mm-hmm. probably one of the most important things because if they take it for granted, then they're not going to want to protect and preserve and improve what we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think the other big thing too is um, it, it's all doom and gloom these days. And I think a lot of times we get way too focused on that. We need to let those people know what we still have and give them a reason to to protect what we still have. Mm. A lot of times it's just like, you know, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad. You know, nobody's in a good mood. We still have an incredible ecosystem right here. And we need to let those those people know that it's it's still here to protect right and i think there, there are so many things to celebrate you know other than just the fishing which can be phenomenal you know the other day my fellow board member and guide dustin pack he and i were weight fishing in the area and he's like hey there's a kingfisher right there that's so awesome and he you know posted a video of it and that really hit home for me because i don't pay enough attention to the other and i'll admit it i don't pay enough attention to the other wildlife we have and i i'll admit it i take it for granted we have some beautiful bird life and you know the manatees obviously are a great thing the dolphins and i've lived here pretty much all my life i was born in jacksonville but grew up in in the tampa bay area for the majority of my life since i was three years old i think and just seeing a dolphin out on the water i'm gonna take it for granted but i think you know more and more the more i work with tampa bay waterkeeper on the board the more i realize we have to take everything um and appreciate it and celebrate it and I think that's probably one of the biggest things that people in Tampa Bay look over. Yeah, I, I've kind of over the past couple of years, I've felt this sense that, you know, we get caught up in these conversations about our preferences of how we want to catch fish or we have all these this infighting. You know, it's people who love the water. It's people who love to fish, but they're fighting about things with other people who still love the same thing, if that makes sense. And one of the things that you know i'm grateful for with waterkeeper organizations is whether you're a paddleboarder who is a vegetarian or you're a live bait guide who loves to eat fish regardless of that all of the activities and all of the passion and love is still around the same place and there's room for conversations about limits there's room for conversations about approaches and ethics but ultimately sometimes what happens is in all of those arguments and infighting the the setting the stage that all this is taking place in gets forgotten the water and i'm grateful for organizations like tampa bay waterkeeper that try to help one keep the public reminded of that because you know i mean at the end of the day guys like greg are waking up and they're thinking about where am i going to fish tomorrow what's the game plan and like of course they care about the water but you know they have a job to do and then two on top of that too like trying to hold the city accountable when the city's thinking through expansion growth tax revenue all of that one of the things that you know i've i've done a couple interviews around tampa bay but adam i think something that might be helpful is if you could just give an elevator pitch to what the problems are here and then how you guys think that we can actually make a change. Sure. Um, and it's not necessarily just a problem in Tampa Bay, but it's, it's really a statewide issue in the state of Florida. And it would be wastewater and stormwater. Uh, those are the, what I would call the silent killers of the Bay. Okay. And not that our, 
our bay is on the verge of death. And it's been there before, and in the, the 70s, it was basically declared as a dead estuary, dead bay. And there were a lot of great things that happened at that point where the public got involved and got behind conservation and water quality issues, and the bay came back and really thrived. Mm-hmm. And it just went up and up and up, exponential growth with seagrass and life and everything else. Um, but, you know, now we're seeing, you know, with growth, we're having more wastewater and stormwater issues. And, and the big problem is with the wastewater and the stormwater comes nutrient load coming into the estuary. And that is like, you know, supercharged, you know, food for your harmful uh, algae blooms, red tide, lingbia. Lingbia is that snot grass, that, that uh, the algae that covers the seagrass, chokes off the light kills the grass and it floats up to the surface so in the past what is it greg probably five six years yeah we've seen just acres and acres and acres of this lingbia snotgrass. Yep. my friends and i call it quag quagmire stuff i've sent videos right. of it to you i mean there's there's mats of it you can't fish half in it. a mile long yeah you can't fish you in can't it. fly you fish in it you can't Absolutely even live bait not. fish in it it covers up your line your leader your hooks your bait everything and i live on the yeah. south shore so anytime we got a south wind at 25 miles an hour, I'm like, sweet. I get to stay home and fish today. I don't have to go anywhere. You can't fish because it's blowing all that lingbia off the seagrass, and the entire south shore is unfishable. Right, and it's uh, one of the most shocking things I've ever seen, and this was, gosh, I can't remember what it was, but it must have been like two, three years ago, coming up the ICW uh, inside of Anna Maria and looking at the Key Royale flat, and the entire thing was just covered. And yep. I mean, I don't know how many acres that is, but it's just a massive, massive flat. The entire thing was just covered with the snot grass, the quag. So um, to uh, short answer to your question, sorry. <laughs> um, it's the, a long elevator. It's, it is. Yeah, it is. Okay. Um, so we're going up the Empire State Building, I guess. Yeah, but it's fine. Anyway, the wastewater, the stormwater, those are the biggest issues that I think face Tampa Bay and the nutrient load coming into the bay. And that's where we come in as an organization. There's a lot of great nonprofits out there, especially in the Tampa Bay area. You have Tampa Estuary Program, Tampa Bay Watch, Tampa Bay Waterkeeper. We all have our individual lanes, and our lane as Tampa Bay Waterkeeper is to monitor, to inform the public, and, and you know, our, our three-word mantra is preserve, protect, improve, and how do we do that? Um, well, a, a decent part of what we do, one of our tools is environmental enforcement. And what that specifically means is enforcing of, uh, the Clean Water Act, the federal law, and when a city or county or corporation violates that Clean Water Act, we step in and we represent essentially the public, the citizens of Tampa Bay, and we are the voice. And we're the ones that step up and hold those uh, municipalities and counties and corporations accountable for violating the Clean Water Act and dumping nutrients or other um, uh, harmful elements into our estuary, into our bay. So that's what we do. That is a very long elevator pitch. I'm sorry. Don't give a microphone to an attorney because I'll take up the entire time. <laughs> You're filibusting. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I do remember that from school. Yeah. No, I, I think one of the challenges, though, is with this generation, I think there's two challenges. One, there's the challenge of apathy, meaning I don't really know if even if I care and even if I do things, it's going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. That's one challenge. The second challenge is I'm so inundated with information and videos and articles. It's just hard to keep up. So those are the two challenges that I see is like apathy, like nothing I do matters. And then number two, um, I am just 
bogged down with information. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to hear, and and maybe Greg, you can kick this one off. I'm, I'm curious to hear, how do we try to help people not be bogged down and not lose hope and become apathetic when it comes to fighting for our fisheries? Uh, I mean, I, that's a tough one with, with the situation that we're in right now. Um, but bottom line, you have to let those people know that you care. And, you know, talking about the whole thing, how much can you actually do? You know, me as a, as a guide, I mean, basically what, what we can do is, you know, let our clients know, have actual meaningful comp, you know, conversation on the boat. Don't say, you know, fuck big sugar, all this stuff. Nobody, nobody's going to listen to that. You need to mm -hmm. tell them the entire thing, like, like what Adam just went through mm -hmm. and actually inform them instead of just saying, you know, this is what's bad. And the other thing is, you know, being out there every day, um, you know, it's, it's a citizen watch program, you know, you see what's going on, you know what the problems are and, and you know, what can you do as a, as a fishing guide? You don't have a lot of money. Um, just notify, you know, people like Tampa Bay water. I called, called you guys the other day. I had a, a commercial pipe welder and you know, he's, he's working. I'm not going to give any details. Um, you know, but on a huge gas bill here in Tampa Bay. And he, he told me about it, the details. I send it to, to you guys and, you know, what can you do? But we just need to stay informed without being too negative. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. Because the negativity will get to people mm -hmm. to some point where they get to that point where they're like, what's the use? Right. And I think that continued information and really, like Greg said, explaining to people because the stormwater wastewater issue it's not something you can always see and that's why i refer to it as kind of a silent killer right and you only really see it when you have these huge red tide events where these nutrients feed the red tide and you end up with these big fish kills um, so that's where it really gets the public's attention but it's still going on on a daily basis and you may not see a fish kill but what you see is seagrass dying and without the seagrass the sea, we don't have the shrimp, the crabs, the bait fish to keep the fish in our area. And so I believe the number, you know, since 2020, we've lost something like 4,000 acres of seagrass in Tampa Bay. And it's just, which is just an absolutely shocking number. Um, and over the past decade, and I might be corrected on this later, but I think we've lost somewhere in the neighborhood of 12,000 or 14,000 acres, right? Okay. 11,000 uh, acres in the past, it was a decade. Since 2014, uh, we've lost 11,000 acres of seagrass, and in the last two years, it's been 4,000 acres alone of that 11,000. You know, and it, it doesn't take somebody who's a rocket scientist to look at it and see, well, what happened two years ago, Piney Point, and where we had just a nutrient overload into the bay, resulted in lots of HABs, harmful algae blooms, uh, which has had a profound effect on Tampa Bay and a lasting effect at that. Uh, we're still dealing with it. So, you know, as far as negating apathy in the public, we have to find a way to keep people informed in such a way that even though they don't see it, they understand it. And that's a difficult thing because, listen, we live in a beautiful place no matter what's going on. You go out there and you may not see what's going on underneath the water, but there may be 
a complete cloud of, of algae going on that you just don't see. And one example also, you know, we were talking about wastewater, stormwater, but listen, plastic pollution is a big thing as well. And Dustin Pack, our board member, was just out on the water today, I think it was, or yesterday, and we had a little rainstorm, and there was a spot under the bridge in the Hillsborough River where there's an opening where all the storm drains uh, feed into it and dump into the river, and it's just a conveyor belt of trash coming into the Hillsborough River. And, you know, the city of Tampa bills, you know, river walk is, you know, one of the jewels of the city, but if you really walk it and look down into the water you see a lot of trash a lot of plastic bottles a lot of soda bottles a lot of stuff i work in the bank of america building in downtown tampa on the 17th floor and i look out over the river and i can look down i can see trash flowing down the river every day so that's another issue you know and there's a lot of things that we can do as the public to hold the cities and counties accountable and say hey listen i'd like to do something about this trash is going into the storm drains off of the street there's a lot of things that can be done um, that we're advocating for as an organization, not only the nutrient and wastewater stuff, but also um, plastic pollution and trash. Yeah, I'm grateful for it. You know, this morning I went out, we had a little bit of a weather window, and I went out with my cousin. And it was really cool and special to me because my great-grandfather was a mullet fisherman right here in Tampa Bay. And so in over the past couple of years, as I've, as I've learned more about the history of Tampa Bay, you know, it's it's got this really amazing history that's filled with triumph and it's filled with tragedy. Hmm. And um, but what all of that tells us is that when we make changes and we see people that are advocating for it, it actually can make a difference. And to me, that's to know that this fishery right now is at risk, at high risk, but it's better than the fishery that my dad grew up catching fish in as a kid here is encouraging right on yeah and and uh i think i was telling you or someone else earlier you know i grew up down in bradenton and my earliest memories of fishing with my dad wade fishing off of uh emerson point park there and with a bucket of shrimp and you know it was rare to catch a snook back then um in the in the 80s mid 80s and you know i mean i'm sure your father was he did, did he do the commercial netting and everything with the gill netting or was he just or was it after the commercial gill netting uh my grand my it's my great-grandfather that was great the mullet fisherman student. so yeah. i have no clue that how right. it's it was probably not legal today right well so, <laughs> yeah. so as, as an example so in the in the 80s and and one of the the guides that really pushed for it back then with captain scott moore absolutely legendary snook fisherman mm-hmm. and more or less invented live bait pilchard throwing for for snook with light tackle um he was one of the proponents of you know how, uh, banning the gill nets mm-hmm. because there's so much bycatch and and killing the, the the trout and and snook and redfish and flounder whatever else that was mm-hmm. the end with the mullet um and when i was growing up that commercial net ban had just started taking effect and i could see it growing up as i got more and more and more involved in fishing the change in the fishery and i can tell you the fishing's a lot better than it used to be the numbers of fish the size of the fish etc so i use that as an example it's not necessarily tied in with water quality like mm-hmm. tampa Bay waterkeeper is but i think it's a great example of how intervention and a step with something that's obviously affecting things in our bay can be taken and you can have an immediate effect mm-hmm. and that's one of the reasons why i got involved with tampa bay waterkeeper and initially I was, I don't want to say skeptical, but I was just, ah, I just, I don't know if I have the time to do this. I'm a very busy trial attorney litigator. Uh, but 
at heart, I'm a fisherman and I want to have what we have, uh, what I grew up with and what continues to get better for my two kids when they grow older because they love to fish. So when I was told exactly what Tampa Bay Waterkeeper does with the success we've had uh, with environmental enforcement and federal court and state court as well, um, and what that results in is typically, you know, if it has to go to trial, it has to go to trial, but usually the case will resolve. There will be a mediation, a settlement, which results in essentially uh, requirements that the offending city or county or corporation has to follow. Mm-hmm. And if they do that, it will have an immediate effect on our bay. City of Bradenton being an example, uh, where they had, uh, I think, discharged somewhere around 14 million gallons of wastewater, uh, partially treated sewage and fully uh, and, and raw sewage into the Manatee River over the course of uh, several years. Uh, we got involved with a lawsuit with them, and they settled, and now they're required to take certain steps, and we are monitoring whether or not they are doing that, and mm-hmm. we continue to enforce those requirements. So those types of things, every, every gallon we can, print of nu- uh, we can prevent of nutrients coming into the bay is a positive thing. So anything we can do to that is going to have a positive effect, and that's what we're here to do. Well, I'm grateful for it, and I appreciate you guys for carving out just a little Probably. bit of time. Um, I want to encourage people just to – you know, to whether you're into whatever niche of fishing you're in, whether you're into fishing or, or boating or whatever, all of us enjoy the same space. And ultimately, you know, all of us have a responsibility. I, I heard somebody speaking one time and he was talking about how his kid had destroyed a gate. And um, there's a temptation to say, well, that's not my fault. But he said, but that's my responsibility. And I think that if we sit around thinking about whose fault it is, we miss the fact that all of us have a shared responsibility. And so I just want to encourage people to just continue to care about the places that we enjoy and to continue to try to help educate people and connect people to those places. And Greg, I'm grateful for you just for sharing a little bit of your story and uh, what you do as a guide and helping people see and experience this fishery. And thank you guys so much for being a part of this tonight. And um, I look forward to hanging out again. Thank you, Hunter. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for listening to the Captain's Collective Podcast. We'd love for you to help out by sharing this with your family and friends. We hope to see you on May 7th for the Fly Fishing Film Tour at the Tampa Theater. 